0: Jacket. You know it's bad when a preacher takes off his jacket because that means you go stay longer. I sling sweat three pews back and that sort of thing. I'm really happy to be here tonight and uh, unfortunately I saw some men sleeping in the pews this morning or uh, this afternoon when it came in. So Philip, the key man on uh, on uh, on on the spot took some selfies of people sleeping and we're going to post those on the you internet say, this is what happens when a brother John preaches. <laughs> I used to have the gift of putting people to sleep, uh, but uh, I think I've lost that gift in my old age. They used to give me babies to rock and, and uh, carry around, and uh, I usually was pretty good at putting them to sleep because I was not as nervous as their mothers were. Okay, uh, let's, uh, let's start with a problem here in Genesis chapter 19 verses around Genesis 24 Um, and I just want us to understand something before we go into the message proper for tonight and don't worry young I'm going to pray before the message and uh, let's see we're looking at the encounter with Abraham and uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah I want us to understand something that there's two Yahweh's do we understand that do we all understand that there are two Yahweh's there is the visible Yahweh and the invisible Yahweh both are the names for our covenant God in the Old Testament uh, they, The generic name for God is Elohim, it's not God. God is the name of a Babylonian God of fortune. I don't know why the translators ever (coughs) translated Elohim as God, but they have, and we're kind of stuck with it. But we want to look at uh, Genesis chapter 19, verses 24, and most of the time when we blow through the scriptures, and uh, I'm just as guilty of that as everyone else, not thinking and meditating on the scriptures <coughs> excuse me this is uh, the destruction of sodom and gomorrah and we know that the three angels had come to abraham uh, at his tent door and he extended hospitality to them and it says literally he washed their feet so we have a problem if Jesus was there in spiritual form. He had feet that were tangible enough to be watched. So we have a Yahweh incarnate or a Yahweh manifest himself in the body. And then it says in 1924, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire and Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord. Now, I don't know. I'm an English teacher and I'm pretty good at some grammar that seems to me to say that there's two lords going on there's two yahweh's in the old testament one in heaven and one walking embodied manifesting himself, and appearing on the earth and that's what we're going to see later on today in our teaching so the question i'm asking you tonight and i apologize for the technical difficulties we had this morning i went back and looked at my slides i realized when you change uh, Uh, backgrounds, you have to change the font too, so uh, a lot of the slides this morning were confusing because I was one step behind and one step ahead of the two, and I apologize for that, that's not going to happen again. Uh, But we're looking at John chapter 3, the first night we looked at it in the larger context, and I suggested to you that each uh, author of the book Uh, Are we are are we receiving a message from on high is that is that the spaceship circling the earth here signal is the time for the rapture okay here we go we looked at the greater context the larger context of the uh, John chapter 3 and we discovered that John was and is obsessed with the resurrection And there's a very familiar, very easy explanation to that because he is writing to Jews in the dispersion and saying essentially, don't make the mistake that the Palestinian Jews have made by rejecting the proof or the text of the resurrection. It's it's almost ironic or it's almost fantastic to me that of the 18 confessions of faith, the 18 so-called benedictions of Judaism in that time period, one of the cardinal doctrines was the resurrection of the dead and all through the gospels all four of the gospels we have people who just don't understand the resurrection of the dead and that's why i'm emphasizing it in my ministry and i'm getting going close to the place where i need a resurrection and i think everybody needs to focus on that because that's the central issue of the christian life uh, A profound question was asked to me when I was in mission field in Korea. I used to uh, teach English to shrinks. I had two shrinks and they were medical doctors and professional psychiatrists and they wanted to be able to converse with their colleagues and contemporaries at international conferences. So they paid me big bucks to come over and sit in their offices and talk for several hours. And that's what I did. And one time I walked in and the chief shrink said to me, Moksinin, that's a Korean title uh, honorific for preacher. He said, Moksinin, how come you Christians practice shamanism? Did you ever know that we did? And I kind of backed up a couple steps and I said, what on earth do you mean? He said, well, every year, about this time all the mothers in the congregation gather in the church and pray that their kids will get accepted to the, the highest prestigious rich schools that they can get into he said that's just pure shamanism and i thought to myself you know he's got a point he's got a point where in the scripture does it say that the lord is going to guarantee you a good school or a high position a rich prosperous life it doesn't say that that's shamanism that's manipulating the elements to make me happy and so i went step back two or three steps and i said what is it that makes christianity unique well could it be that we all go to heaven and float around and strum on guitars like jesse does and see jesus and join in a circle and sing let the circle be unbroken is that, is that what Christianity makes Christianity unique? I mean, the Buddhists got that. They have, they go in front of a Judge Buddha who decides whether they're going to be reincarnated at one level or next, and they keep working themselves up eternity after eternity. And finally, they hit Nirvana. They got an afterlife going for them that just won't quit. And the Catholics have that. And everybody seems to have an afterlife. What is it that makes Christianity unique? And I came to the conclusion that it is the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of the believer. And that's what we believe and that's what we preach and that's what makes it all hang together. That's what makes the kingdom important because going to heaven is not the goal of Christian life. It might be just an interim station because God never has it uh, in the text that he has promised to take us to heaven. Do you believe that? Think about that a minute. I went through every covenantal promise in the scripture recently, and i produced a slideshow for it, and every covenantal promise that God has made has something to do with land. The land, the land, the land, the land. Okay, we're gonna talk about that. Let's look at uh, the passage of scripture that we have before us is John chapter 3 very very familiar. We looked at the larger context and we found out that John was obsessed with the resurrection because he wanted the the Jewish people in the dispersion not to make the same mistake that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did in the land of Israel. He wanted them to embrace the belief in the Messiah and then once they had embraced him or br- embraced embracing belief in him Then they could have life in his name, both now and into eternity. So let's look at the first immediate context. See whether I need to look back over my shoulder here to see whether I got the correct slide working for me. Yes, I do. We're looking at John chapter 2, verse 16. Everybody turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, verse verse 13, not 16. John chapter 2. Verse 13, and that says, Now at the Passover, the Jews Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the immediate context has Jesus in Jerusalem on Passover Eve. And he's celebrating, or getting ready to celebrate, a feast that was a perpetual statute in Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, says that every year you have to go up to Jerusalem, or else you're going to be cut off from your people. I wish some of the people in our current life and situation would realize that when they go on vacation when the Lord's table is scheduled. Jesus is here fulfilling Malachi 3 1 and 3 in this section. the one the Lord who you fear will suddenly come to his temple notice now think about this if Jesus is the chosen sacrifice as if he is the Lamb of God that fulfills the Passover typology and John the Baptist said behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world notice if Jesus is the chosen sacrifice of God and then the animal sacrifices must be driven out of the temple. So, Jesus says, take these things away. What's he talking about? We assume that he's talking about the tables and the money changers where the uh, the currency that normally had Caesar's image on was exchanged for a temple token that had an image of the, the nation of Israel on it. But he might be talking about also Taking away the animals for sacrifice because he is the sacrifice. He is the one that's going to abolish animal sacrifices. So take these things away. So it's a case of double meaning again. Now let's continue. He says, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Did you get that? In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have uh, told you. Here is the Father's house that he's talking about. He's talking about the temple. Later on, in, uh, he says, I go away and prepare a place for you. Where's the place? The place is in the temple. That's where the rulers ruled from. That's where the Sanhedrin met. That's where the uh, apostles were prom- uh, promised thrones ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Use of the my pronoun, notice he says, my father's house. Use of the my pronoun indicates a special relationship with the father. Consider the Lord's Prayer where he taught us to pray our father. He didn't tell us to pray my father. He says, our father who art in heaven. When you get saved in a uh, uh, context of Judaism, you are immediately placed in a community. Now, we're kind of John Wayne type of Christians. We're kind of lean and mean and solitary individuals. We go out and kind of lean on the on the uh, the corral and kind of say, well, it's just me and God. No, it's not. It's you and the community of God that he puts together. So when we say our fathers who are in heaven, we're talking and confessing immediately that we are a part of a body of or an organization, an extension, a community organization that worships God and can claim God as our Father. The disciples remember, in the media context, Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for thy house will consume me. Because Jesus had claimed extraordinary equality with the Father, the Jewish leadership calls for a sign that is going to support his claim. And Jesus' responds, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now we have a problem of language again. The Jewish authorities, as they usually do in the Gospel of John, misunderstand the words by taking a literal interpretation of the temple. The author helps us in 2.21 by telling the reader, but he was talking about the temple of his body. He wasn't talking about the literal, physical uh, Herod's temple that they were standing in front of he was talking about the temple of his body Now there's conscious ambiguity in this passage. he says in destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up now de- destroy can either mean a building or a human life. temple can either mean a building or a body. Raise can either mean raise the temple or raise a human body from the dead. So John and Jesus deliberately introduce ambiguous terminology because they are interested in those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And not everybody is going to have the sensitivity to hear the same thing and interpret what he's talking about. So, we're at Passover proper now. We're no longer before uh, the eve of Passover, and the statement is made, many believed in him because of the signs, but Jesus did not believe in them. Why? Because he knew what was in man, and what is in man is darkness and sin and confusion. But, there's an exception here, or an illustration, but... There was a man. Now, what we want to do and encourage you to do is ignore the chapter break here. This is flowing through from Passover to the statement about the temple, to the statement about the resurrection of Christ, right into the conversation with Nicodemus. Let's look forward here. He came to Jesus by night. He came to Jesus by night, which was the normal time to visit with a rabbi. Nothing significant about there. But let's turn over a minute to John 13.30 and we'll see something different. When we turn over to John 13.30, we see Judas having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. And it was night. As the text unfolds, we see that Nicodemus has a gaping hole in his knowledge he is still in the night he is still in the darkness he doesn't understand scripture he doesn't understand what the Messiah wants to tell him and talk to him about he's still in the dark when we uh, preached last year or maybe it was the year before conferences kind of flow together at this stage in my life but I made the statement that when Peter went out from the presence of the Lord next to the bonfire in the, uh, waiting to be tried by Pilate, he went, Peter went out and it was night. He went into the outer darkness. To go away from the light, to go away from the revelation of God, is to go out into the darkness. So Nicodemus comes to him by night, and that's a theological statement as well as a statement of what hour of the day it is. He is in the dark, and he has this gaping hole in his understanding. He is the teacher of Israel. Notice the definite article, or PhD, he the teacher of Israel. This means he was the head of his own school of theology. He was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary in the Contemporary Understanding yet he doesn't understand something about what's going on in the scriptures. Now Nicodemus in very proper ancient near eastern terminology tries to flatter Jesus. You are a teacher sent from God. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel but here he's recognizing that Jesus is a teacher sent from God. The proof that he offers for the fact that he is a teacher sent from God, is that no one can do the signs that Jesus is doing at Passover unless God is with him. Now, Jesus responds by saying, verily, verily, in the Hebrew, it would be amen, amen, uh, It's this way of taking a legally binding oath. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you and I and Nicodemus did not see that coming, because there's no relationship between what Jesus said and what Nicodemus said. Nicodemus says, "We know you're a teacher for, said from God because you do all these signs." And Jesus says, "You know you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again." So what has those two things got to do with each other? Let's look further. The word that is in question here is either an adverb, or an adverb of time, or an adverb of place. It's either again or above. You're either born again or born from above. Now let's look at the usage in the other parts of the Gospel of John. Let's look over at John 3.31, John 3.31. In John 3, 31, Jesus says, or maybe it's John the Baptist talking, he says, He who comes from above, highlight that circle from above, circle of, from above is above all. He who is of the earth, or from below, is earthy and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. To come from above means to come from heaven in that case. Now, let's look at back at John 19.11. 11. John 19, 11. And we're reading at 11. And Jesus said, you could have, he's talking to Pilate now. He says, you could have no power of, at all against me unless it had been given you from above. There is the same word that's used in John chapter 3. From above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And then to conclude, let's look at John nineteen twenty-three, which doesn't really uh, isn't readily transparent to us. In nineteen twenty-three, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, each soldier each soldier a part, also the tunic, and the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece. It's hard to see the word there, but it's the word uh, woven from the top or from above in one scene. So the question remains in this passage, is this adverb, which can mean again or above, an adverb of time or is it an adverb of place? Well, we know quite soon how Nicodemus understood it. Nicodemus understood Jesus to be saying an adverb of time. He said, how is a man able to be born when he is old? He is not able to enter into the womb of his mother and be born again, is he? And the Greek language demands the answer no. Whenever, by the way now, whenever the word genao, which means to be born, is used in the New Testament, a physical body is produced. If this is talking about regeneration, this would be the only exception. So we're talking about ganao, which means to be born, to enter the womb and be born physically. Now Nicodemus then, I mean, Jesus then corrects Nicodemus' understanding of what he just said. Verse five explains the adverb anothen, By elaborating, Jesus goes back and repeats exactly the same phrase in the Greek language, except he's going to use a double metaphor to explain what it means to be born from above. He says, unless one is born of water and wind, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let me say that again, because this is, does not agree with what your text usually reads in the English translation. Un, he he's explaining the statement that he had made earlier, unless one is born again, he repeats exactly the same phrase in the Greek language. He says, no, what I mean, Nicodemus, is unless one is born of water or rain and wind, which, by the way, comes from above, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, most English translations err here because they translate, one must be born of water and the spirit. Do they not? Is that what some of your translations say? Yeah. There's only one problem, uh, and the interpretation then is usually meaning the spirit of God. There's only one problem, and that is in the original language, in the original text, There is no word for T-H-E. The article is missing. It's gone. It's not there. So somebody, some creative translator has assumed that uh, this should be talking about the Spirit of God, so he's inserted it. And that's where we get in trouble theologically. Okay, let's look at... This is a false translation based on a false assumption. It's the false translation based on a false assumption the assumption is that the spirit of god is being referred to in that passage that's the false assumption and therefore we need to insert the definite article which is a false translation there's no definite article in the greek manuscript before the word pneuma which where we get the word spirit air and breath from and furthermore the greek preposition ek governs both water and the wind and only permits a simultaneous event. So when we are being born from above, it has to happen the same time. We can't have one physical birth and one spiritual birth is what I'm saying, okay? Am I confusing anybody? You know what the custom is, when I preach over anybody's head, you have to stand up so I can't do that anymore. Okay, now let's connect this passage to uh, the Old Testament. Remember, Jesus didn't have the Gospel of John. He didn't have the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. He had never heard of Paul. None of the New Testament was available to him when he was talking to Nicodemus. But the Old Testament, the rich, rich Old Testament, was readily available to him. And John 3 connects these two. And the reason why we're going back to the Old Testament is because later on in this passage, uh, Jesus introduces the term eternal or age-lasting life. And there's only one occurrence, and that is in Daniel chapter one and two. That's the only occurrence in the Old Testament, and that's where Jesus gets his theology of eternal life from. So we're going back to the Old Testament, and we're asking the this question. We're saying the four terms, water, Wind and spirit, breath, and I slash these between them so you know that these are interchangeable terms, sound and slash noise and kingdom, where are they found together in the Old Testament? And the answer to that question is they are found in Ezekiel 36 and 37. This is the very famous vision of the valley of the dry bones. These bones, these bones, these dry bones. And we've been singing that since we were kids, and we don't realize it's talking about the resurrection. This is a literal resurrection. I can't go to any passage of scripture, I can't go to any surgical or medical manual that gives a more graphic, detailed. Description of what it means to be resurrected from the dead in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. This is a letter, literal resurrection, and to my shame and embarrassment, not a metaphorical regathering of Israel in 1948, which is what my seminary normally understands and teaches. Let's go back to Ezekiel 36. We have a time, I think, here, if not. Please stand up and shut me down, Alan. Ezekiel chapter 36. For some reason, every speaker so far has been in Ezekiel, but that's okay. We're looking at Ezekiel 36, and we're looking, first of all, in Ezekiel 36:25. In Ezekiel 36, 25, God says... Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So that's the occurrence of the imagery of water. Then we go to the next verse in Ezekiel 26, and he says, I will give you a new heart. I like that after getting out of the rehab at heart hospital. I like the idea of getting a new heart. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So that we have two terms down of the four terms we're looking at. And then let's let's look at 37.7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling. And the bones came together bone to bone. There's the sound and the noise, the rattling. And finally, let's go to 3722, where we have a very wonderful verse. And I will make them one nation, talking about the two tribes or the two kingdoms. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. There you have the reunification of the two kingdoms of Israel. And what I'm saying is that this terminology that is used in John chapter 3 directly relates to an event that happens in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, which is the resurrection. Okay, stay with me now. Here's the issue, the explanatory value of this interpretation. Nicodemus did not understand Ezekiel on the resurrection. That's why Jesus stands amazed at at Nicodemus. He said, you mean you're the head of the theological department of Israel and you don't understand about Ezekiel chapter 6 resurrection? Come on. This is why Jesus marveled. He did not understand, this is Nicodemus now, Nicodemus did not understand earthly things, so there was no point in Jesus teaching him heavenly things. Illumination is progressive. And I think everyone in this audience, including myself and Alan and Tracy and just about everyone else, understands that principle that illumination is progressive. After you understand and obey for a while, then God's going to give you more information to act on and respond to. I told someone on the phone the other day, I just got to live 10 more years so I can understand all this stuff that we're discovering right now. So illumination is progressive and blindness also is progressive. Now let's think about John chapter 3 verse 8. This is a key verse, key understanding. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. Now here's the zinger. So also is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Praise God. Now this refers to to a born-again Christian. Then we must conclude that every real Christian, every born-again Christian, is independently willful, and doesn't understand where he comes from or where he's going to. Do we not? Now we know some people like that, do we not? Jesus said, there's a comparison going on here, there's an analogy, and the wind is independent, you don't control it, it's independent, it goes where it wishes, it blows where it wants to, and you hear the sound of it, you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going to. So also is everyone who is born of the Spirit, So if this passage is teaching resurrection, then there's a lot of idiots running around in the Christian life, not knowing their origin, not knowing their destiny. But there's another alternative. If this verse is talking about a resurrected Christian, then the verse makes sense. Jesus had the ability to eat breakfast next to the Sea of Galilee, but also had the ability to go through locked doors, did he not? It's the first thing he did after he met with the disciples after his resurrection. He said, boys, let's go fishing. I don't, I'm not trying to be somber, guys. I'm really not. The resurrected body can cr- truly go wherever it wills and a non-resurrected body cannot perceive from where it comes from or where it has disappeared to. now, The next step in the argument is the nature of God's kingdom. Listen to me now carefully in the scripture. God has always had an earthly kingdom in mind. God has always had an earthly kingdom in mind. From the time he committed dominion to Adam and Eve, he has always had the idea that there should be an earthly kingdom. God's plan has never been to take believers to heaven where they die, when they die, where they can exist in spiritual forms similar to ghosts. Now, I teach at the university level, a little bit higher than uh, I think Lindell talked about teaching kindergarten or elementary school. It's just a little bit higher at the university level. And so I will play with the students in this way. I will say at uh, one time, most of you guys have been raised in church. How many of you believe that you're going to die and go to heaven? All, all hands will go up. Not just the ones who have been raised in church. All hands will go up. Everybody's going to die and go to heaven. Then I will ask the next question, do you believe in ghosts? And about half of the hands will go up. And I said, okay, if you don't believe in ghosts, then how are you going to get to heaven? That's the question. Uh, Is God interested at all in ghosts floating around in the sky in a disembodied state? That's the thing we have to answer. And Paul very precisely gives us the answer to that question. Paul tells us specifically in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says, For we, we Christians who are in this earthly tent, that's our earthly present body, it's going to be folded up soon, we groan. That's a lot of groaning going on. Being burdened. A lot of burdens being carried. Cheered. Not because we want to be unclosed. We don't want to be without a body. But further closed. With our resurrection body. That mortality be, may be swallowed up with eternal life. So all the people running around saying, Oh man, i got to go to heaven, got to go to heaven, got to go to heaven. Paul says, We don't want that. We want the rapture to come, where the cloud of glory comes down and dumps the resurrection body over top, further clothing us than what we already have. We don't want to float around as ghosts in the heavenly places. We want to have the kingdom. We want to sit at the feet of the Messiah, the earthly king, and do his bidding and do his errands and teach his law to the nations. That's what we want to do. If all the covenantal promises of God in Scripture are searched, and I've done that, it is impossible to find one that promises believers a land in heaven. Yet, here we go, song leaders. You know, J. Vernon McGee used to say, if the devil fell from heaven uh, today, he'd land in the choir loft. And uh, having worked with musicians over the years in the ministry, I probably believe that to be true. But here's our hymnody, here's what our hymnody teaches. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wistful eye, to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Our possessions lie in Canaan, that's on the earth, that's not in heaven, that's our inheritance. Let's push this a little bit farther. God has always had an earthly kingdom in mind, ruled over by the king of his choosing and his companions. This present age is ruled over by a sub-king, a petty king called Satan, and his companions. When the Messiah comes, he is going to be displaced. And that is why we have something called spiritual warfare, is because Satan does not want to give up his place in the heavenlies he wants to frustrate us in our striving to get there matthew six ten has us praying for the coming of the kingdom of earth from heaven to earth i will often say to believers i say you pray the lord's prayer well certainly of course we do and every day you say thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven yeah that's what we say well, where's it coming from, and where's it going to end up? It's coming from heaven, and it's coming to stay here. Paul has us understand. This is a very key uh, verse. I would like you to circle or put on your refrigerator or do something like that. Paul has us understand in Romans four thirteen is that the promise to Abraham and to his seed. Galatians says we are the seed of Abraham by faith. The promise to Abraham and to his seed includes the inheritance of the world. We're not just talking about (coughs) Jerusalem here. We're talking about the ends of the earth ruled from a capital city in Jerusalem. Believers are going to inherit the kingdom, and they are going to be petty rulers. Now, with my qualifications, (coughs) I'm qualified to rule over Hector, Arkansas, Population 503, but uh, something you might do better than that. Alright. Let's look, one more argument going on here. Verses 5 and 6 in John chapter 3. Everybody's probably out of, out of sequence here, but bear with me as I get to it again. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It says there. Jesus answered, Most assuredly or verily, verily, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and spirit or wind, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Then he says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Now notice between verses 5 and 6, there's no connective. There's nothing that connects the two verses. The term, the literal term is anacoluthon. So you and I have to figure out what the relationship is between the two verses. Let's paraphrase it. Unless a man is resurrected, he cannot enter the kingdom of God because that which is flesh is flesh and that which is spirit is spirit. In other words, he cannot enter because his body is not suited for it. His body is not suited for it. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, 50. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Commentators have erred in understanding the ju- juxtaposition between the outward and the inner man. This is neoplatonic thinking. So in other words, when they see the words flesh and spirit, they said flesh, means the outer man, spirit means the inner man. To be born again and is born again in the spirit, that's the inner man. That's not the contrast that scripture uses when it's talking about flesh and spirit. When it's talking about flesh, it's talking about this earthly body, this age, this time in which we live. When it's talking about spiritual, it's talking about resurrected body, future age, kingdom to come. So this uh, this is not a Greek concept this is a hebrew concept the true contrast is hebrewistic thinking which contrasts this age and the age to come what can we say to these things what i've done tonight i have argued that this passage is teaching the bodily resurrection of the believer that's how we enter the kingdom of god that's how we stand before the lord in judgment it's based on the thematic development of the book of John. It's based on the close context. It's based on the Old Testament linkage. It's t- uh, based on the analogy in 3 8. It's based on the, con- the correct understanding of Greek grammar. It's based on the nature of the coming kingdom. And finally, it's based on the juxtaposition of flesh and spirit. So, What have we done? What we've done is unify the first 11 chapters of John around the theme of the resurrection. We haven't destroyed the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration is still intact. And what this does for us, I I think it is really helpful. Since the time the born-again concept, the born-again Christian concept, has taken hold of the Christian community, We have sat in judgment of each other. You know, if so-and-so would really be born again, he wouldn't do that sort of thing. Well, the answer is, yes, he would, because if he's born again, he's just an immature child until he grows up and matures in the faith. So we need to stop trying to read each other's minds and read each other's hearts and sitting in judgment of whether or not you are a real, real believer or not. And I think that will liberate us. If someone tells me they're a believer, I'm just going to take their word for it. And then I'm going to say, now, a true believer who's getting ready to serve God in his kingdom does not do what you just did. A true believer forgives his brother or sister in Christ when he's offended. A true believer uh, remains faithful to his wife all the days of his life. A true believer doesn't fall in love and say, oh, it just happened. All these things are subjects that pastors have to deal with or brothers and sisters in Christ have to deal with. But get out of the habit of saying, well, if he's, not, he's, not a, if he's a true believer, he wouldn't do that. If he was born again in his spirit, he wouldn't do that. That helps us in that area. It also helps us in the area of spiritual warfare. We get a lot of argument, a lot of uh, ink spilled, asking the question whether Satan can uh, have access to the believer. Well, no, he's in the world of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Satan can't touch him. Baloney. When you go to the parable of the soils in the three Gospels, you find that the birds steal the seed. He has access to your mind. And that's why you are asked to guard your mind. Guard your mind. Make sure that you're thinking right about these things. All these things are helpful if you understand John chapter 3 properly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for clarity and understanding your word. I pray, Father, that we would come to grips with the text itself and not think about traditions or things people have told us in the past that may or may not be correct. I pray for every individual here that you would build them up in the holy faith and bring them to maturity so we could hear that well-done, good, and faithful servant enter into the joyful occasion of your Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.